1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
0: You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews, and book reviews. How are you all doing? We are nearly there. We're nearly at Christmas. I hope you're okay you know what? I've just realised some people just don't know what the right thing is to do. So I'm in a supermarket, a large supermarket, and it's the month of December. So people are fraught. Things are happening. And I'm in an aisle. It's packed full of people. And this chap decides whatever, however many people there are in this aisle, he is turning his trolley round. And there is no room for him to turn the trolley around. If you've gone the wrong way, go round the aisle and come round. Honestly, I felt like I needed to issue a list of instructions to people as to how they should behave in aisles, like aisle decorum, the do's and do nots. Honestly, and this chap, everyone was shuffling round as he was turning his trolley and he just... He didn't seem to think there was a problem with it, and we were all there going its it's Christmas we're losing our minds, everything is costing a fortune, and you want to turn your trolley round. you can't anyway, there we go, last straw." Now, this is the last episode for a couple of weeks. I'm sorry, we're going to have a bit of a break. And then I am back in January. First Monday of January, I believe it is. Very exciting. Lots to talk to you about. In fact, let me check. Is it the first Monday of January? Because I'm saying that and I don't even know what day in January it is. You see, I'm so glad I checked. I'm not back the first Monday in January, the first Monday. So you're going to miss me on Boxing Day and you're going to miss me the day after New Year's Day. So I'm not going to be here the 26th and the 2nd, but I'm back on the 9th. And already know some of the books I'm going to be talking to you about in that episode. Brilliant ones. Can't wait. So we're going to come back with a punch. But this time I've got... There's so much to talk to you about this week. Here are the books that I'm reviewing. I'm going to review Murder on the Christmas Express by Alexandra Benedict. And Alexandra is coming on to talk to us about that book. Then I'm also going to talk to you about Sometimes People Die by Simon Stevenson. I listened to that as an audiobook. I'm then going to tell you about Welcome to the New World by Jake Halpin and Michael Sloan. That's a graphic novel. Then I'm going to talk to you about a short story collection, The Six Who Came to Dinner by Anne Youngson. And finally, The Hive by Scarlett Braid. In addition to that, we've got another indie publisher. We've got Sean from Red Dog Press coming on to talk to us about his publishing firm, what they're doing and what to look out for, all sorts of things with that. And then I'm going to give you my top 10 books of the year. Basically, I'm cramming three episodes in one. So I'm sorry, buckle up. It's going to be, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot going on, but never mind. You know me, we'll get through it. So let's get started. And we have to deal first of all with Alexandra Benedict. Deal with her. That sounds like there's something bad. There's not. Listen to the blurb on the murder on the Christmas Express. In the early hours of Christmas Eve, the sleeper train to the Highlands is derailed, along with the festive plans of its travellers. But that is only the beginning of their problems. When the body of one of the passengers is discovered in the locked room of her cabin, all the evidence points to murder. With the train stuck in the snow in the middle of nowhere, it's up to former Met detective Ros Parker to find the killer before they strike again. But as the countdown to Christmas and their rescue begins, Ross discovers that there are many secrets on board this train and many passengers with motives for murder. As a killer stalks the carriages, who will be the next to die? And will any of them get home for Christmas alive? Let's do the first sentence. Prologue, December 24th. Meg wouldn't let him see her cry. Not this time. She ran out of the club car, aware of the phone cameras turning her way. Her eyes stung as she stumbled down the corridor to their cabin. The train seemed to whisper to her, he doesn't love you, he doesn't love you, he never loved you. Mm. You wanted a Christmas book, I've got you a Christmas book. And yes, the others that I'm talking about today are not Christmas books, but this very much is, and I think we need to go and talk to Alexandra now. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Alexandra Benedict, whose latest fabulous book is Murder on the Christmas Express. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Philippa. It's a delight to be here. You are are an accomplished author. You are an award-winning author. My goodness. (laughs) Let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Absolutely. Murder
2: on the Christmas Express. It's set the day before Christmas Eve, and former Met Detective Ros Parker is taking the last sleeper train back to her hometown of Fort William, going all the way from London to the Highlands. And she's going back in order to get there, hopefully, for the birth of her granddaughter. So she's on the way, thinking she's retiring, that she won't be doing any detectorating ever again. But things don't quite go to plan when the train derails in the Highlands in the early hours of the morning of Christmas Eve. And uh, a body is found in a locked cabin.
0: Mm. Now, I love Christmas. And I love books, especially crime books. So a crime book based at Christmas is is just lovely. And this isn't your first Christmas book. Why why did you decide to do this?
2: I love Christmas. I I adore Christmas. I wish it was Christmas at least half the year. And the the rest of the year was Halloween. That would make me very, very happy. Um I also love I love the dark and the light at Christmas. It's a celebration of of light in the middle of the darkest times. And, And I think crime fiction can often be that for people. So it seems a distillation of all that is great about crime fiction at the very best time of the year.
0: Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I love the fact that everyone's on this train. You've got separate cabins, but they're all linked. So you can't really avoid each other. Yes. How did you map out the characters and the cabins? How did you do all of that?
2: Well, I've been on the uh, sleeper train uh, several times um, and I've also... Uh, went for my honeymoon um last week so i i could oh <laughs> congratulations <laughs> my goodness newsflash thank you <laughs> so i love it um and so i knew the layout and could see it in my head and you have to take some liberties but but hopefully not too many and so i knew just how claustrophobic it can feel as well as you feel very safe and secure in your tiny weeny beautiful cabin but you're right next to other people. You might have an interconnecting door that is locked, or maybe not in some cases, and the corridors are very narrow. So you can't help but overhear things that you you might not are supposed to overhear and bump into people or um, become, I don't know, a murder victim. It's the perfect place, particularly when it is going to the highlands. And if you derail in the highlands during uh, an almighty snowstorm,
0: you could come into some trouble. So... You're on your honeymoon on a train. Are you there with your notebook looking at suspicious people deciding what's in your next book?
2: I'm always doing that. I don't need a notebook. I'm just I'm just there clocking people. There was one brilliant moment that was a crime story inciting incident where we we passed a cabin and there was a woman whose ticket wasn't matched up in some way. And so the guard said, "Well, I've been assigned a cabin, so you can have mine if you want." So she was going to be not in the cabin that she was supposed to be and the guard wasn't going to be where he was supposed to be. And that is basically the start of of any crime situation on a train where someone is sleeping and they're in the wrong place. So as far as we know that didn't turn into something awful, but there's always some a little snippet wherever I go.
0: So do you have an amazing memory and remember these things, or do you have Alexandra's notepad of deathly occurrences? I, I
2: have a really good memory. So I, I have a photographic memory and a phonographic memory. And I I remember smells and I I I've got a little library of smells in my head mm. and in front of me as well. I I carry smells with me everywhere. I can just scroll back and remember things and replay them. So which is very useful. I do have notebooks as well for jotting down ideas, but luckily I can remember everything, which is good and bad.
0: That's fascinating. I'd love to see how you get on with the menopause, not wishing that on you too early, but <laughs> No, no. Um I've heard my, my friends have said, yeah, that yeah. could be interesting. Let's see how you how you do with that with your with your memory. But No, that's really interesting. So you, you build in the smells and everything in, in recollecting a scene and putting that in your book.
2: Yes, yeah, smells are really important to me. So they are, they're always dominant when I write. In fact, they're probably the first thing that I conjure when I think of a scene
0: before I start writing. So if we come across you and you're sniffing the air, we know (laughs) there's a story in the making. Absolutely, I'm
2: sniffing a story, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel quite safe doing a podcast remotely, though. You're okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this book has quite a few characters, yet each are clearly different. Mm. How do you manage that? Because that must be quite a challenge in itself.
2: It is until they are really clear in my head head so once they've started to come alive they they just it's very easy to write about them because they are walking around and talking in my head very clearly them and talking in a way that's different to each other um, while I'm thinking up the story and they're coming alive slowly that's more hard to go okay so who is where at what time but as long as I know who, who is the victim, or who are the victims, and the reason behind why they are so? Then I I can build quite quickly, and the characters just are, are very kind to me and come to life quite quite easily.
0: And do they stay with you after you finish writing, or do they retreat back again?
2: Um, some of them stay. So Rosa stayed a lot. Lily from last year's Christmas novel, um, she she hangs around, and some of the others. From, from that book as well. But they're kind of, there often dispensing advice or commenting on something, which is quite odd.
0: That's wonderful. Did you always know how the book would end?
2: Yes, I, I always know what the end of the book, any book is. I always write the last line before I write the first line. It's it's really important to me that I know the feeling and the smell oh, wow! and the tone of the ending so that I can build up to it or build up, then down, then up again. Um, It's sort of the end of the journey, and then I can weave around to get there.
0: So literally you write the last sentence as the first thing you do, and then do you go straight back to the beginning, or do you embellish more of the end? I do the last sentence, go
2: and write the first chapter to three, and then I write the last chapter, Um, uh, partly because I... I love writing to deadlines and I want the end to be right. So I don't want there to be any sketchiness or, or scratchiness. Otherwise, I wouldn't ever be able to hand anything in. So um, it, I like to have the ending really secure and the beginning really secure so that I can play um, all the through the rest of it.
0: And how long did it take you to write this this book? This one was
2: from November, December last year through to March. So less than six months while writing other things at the same time. That's the sort of interesting juggling job. They At the moment, things are generally taking about that long to write, which is quite good. Unless I burn out, in which case they take
0: longer. <laughs> and what's the hardest part of the process? Is it the actual Coming up with the idea and sitting down and writing it, or is it editing, or is it the lead up to publishing or, or publishing day? What What's the hardest bit for you? The hardest bit is
2: the middle section of any novel for me is is when I've started and uh, in love with the book and the characters, and and then getting the middle right and the suspense levels and the pullback and and the reveals. Um, that feels quite technical sometimes, which is why I have to remind myself to have fun and play because I I want the readers to be taken on a journey that I can choreograph, but they can also join in with. I worry about that I'm not giving people a good enough experience. And once I get in my own head, then I, then I find it really hard to write. So I just have to remember to have fun. And if I'm having fun, then hopefully a reader will. Gosh,
0: yes. I mean, you really have recently found yourself to be you know the the queen of christmas books (laughs) which is great because we need christmas books about crime and all of that so that's a positive thing as far as i'm concerned absolutely but is it positive for you or do you sometimes feel that you're getting into um, a box that you don't want to get into? I'm
2: quite lucky that I've set up quite a few boxes that I can snuggle and settle down into. So my high-concept thrillers under the name AK Benedict, I've got another one coming out from Simon & Schuster called Little Red Death in 2024 or 25. So I'm writing quite a uh, meta-crime fiction at the same time as writing A Christmas Mystery while writing um, radio and TV scripts for other things and short stories. So actually, I love being able to come back to the Christmas stories and be my sort of dark Christmas self and then be other, other parts of me. So I don't think I'll, I'll get pigeonholed. Alexandra Benedict will be writing um, holiday fiction. And then the rest of me can do other things.
0: Oh, but that's a great way to have it. So it's not that every year... And if you love Christmas, you don't want to get to the point where you're <laughs> wishing Christmas didn't happen because yeah. you got to bring out a book, another book. You can, Whatever your your mood sort of takes you, you, yes. can, you can do that.
2: And that's, that's amazing. Um, and I've got another Christmas mystery out next year. And I, I'm really lucky and amazed that I still... I'm still just as excited about it being Christmas at the moment, then, even though I listen to carols all year round while writing or editing or promoting.
0: So my love of Christmas <laughs> runs deep. So, do you get involved with the book titles and the book covers, particularly with the Christmassy feel of
1: it?
2: Um, my my editor always um, asks what's coming up, particularly clues or, or little touches that could go on the on the cover. So you, you then leave it up to the designer to come up with something lovely and beautiful, which they they always do. Just stunning. I, I love the two covers for the Christmas books. And then the, I'm shown them and then I go, oh, they're brilliant. So that's it, really. That's the end. The titles, they kind these ones in particular describe themselves. I think they will now, my Christmas books, at least for a little bit, will be in this something, something murders or the murder of you know and so christmas will be in the title so that that kind of helps i'm not there trying to go oh what it is it but my ak benedict books little red death i came up with that and um so they are they're a bit less prescriptive in in what oh, they're going to fantastic. be
0: fantastic so let's take you back and my question would be what would you say is the one event in your life that made you become an author i think there were Several.
2: So, but if I'm going to choose one, um, it was having meningitis when I was two. I don't remember before that point, but I remember a lot um, after that point, and probably before. I should be remembering everything. I was remembering everything. So, I have very clear visual and scent memories of the hospital and feeling very scared and the lumbar puncture. And I, I couldn't express it properly. I was then after that quite a spooky child. So I really liked ghost stories. I, I was probably more, more death focused than most because I was nearly there. So I, I think that turned my thoughts to introspection and observing people um, and feeling quite different. I'm also autistic, and I think that brings a level of studying people and studying society because it doesn't quite make sense to me. So I think that actually makes for a good writer because th- the writer is the observer, not necessarily the flaneur. I-, I don't lounge about, I do do that as well. But it- it's it's someone who is just standing a little bit detached and thinking and writing about the world
0: gosh I wasn't expecting you yeah. to say that I mean they do say that your first memory is either an extremely happy moment or an extremely awful upsetting scary moment and yeah my goodness that would seem to be it for you
2: and and yes definitely a traumatic early time and and remembering it all as well makes it makes it difficult um but I, but I also think it it gave me a sense of other people very early on. I remember the other children in the hospital feeling their pain. Um, and I think as a writer, high degree of empathy and being able to place yourself as other people, as a kind of actor... Uh, is really important.
0: Oh gosh, wow! So, when you're writing these books, where are you writing them? When are you writing them? Is it you know the the uh, clock rings nine a.m. and Alexandra sits down to write, or is it a little bit? <laughs> oh, I wish that was true. <laughs> it really varies. It depends where I am
2: and and how I'm feeling. I I love writing in my little study, which I'm in at the moment. Which it's full of my books and full of my little perfume oils and strange things. But then uh, if I get a bit of block, I need to go out. So I um I live by the sea in Eastbourne. So I can just walk to the seafront and sit in a cafe or a hotel. And that helps me shake off the critics that are living in my head. Because I'm looking out to sea when perspective comes a lot more easily. That uh It doesn't matter. I'm just I'm just writing a story for people.
0: And you mentioned you have autism. Do you find are are you sort of in a happier place now? You've got your niche as being an author than at school.
2: Absolutely. I was extremely unhappy at school. I hate I loved learning things, but I, I hated the social environment and how mean everyone was. And it just never made sense. The games and the etiquette and nastiness just I used to hide under the school it was a mobile school buildings with uh on stilts before they built it again and so I used to climb underneath the school and sit there uh, at playtime so that I didn't have to go out and play kiss chase and what's the time Mr Wolf because it it all felt too scary and and now I get to be with my my lovely husband and our little daughter. We're both writers and we're all neurodivergent and it's all perfect. And I get to be a writer, which is what I've wanted since I was so, so small.
0: Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's awful that you had to go through it, but you you are where you need to be and that's fantastic a a very important question what is powering the book writing what biscuit what type of biscuit are you resorting Uh, to let's get down to basics here
2: well this is the most important thing yeah it depends what i'm writing so when i was writing the christmas murder game i i was eating um parkin which is um yorkshire ginger cake writing murder on the christmas express i had little bits of tablet which is in the book, to to power me through. Not too much of that because it's extremely sugary and um, I could just end up in a sugar coma. But I, I do like a chocolate chip biscuit or a chocolate chip shortbread. There was quite a lot of shortbread for Murder on the Christmas Express as well. And tea, a lot of tea.
0: And is there a particular type of tea that's powering
2: that? Um, usually Yorkshire tea, either caffeinated in the morning, decaf in the afternoon. I also like uh, Bothham's or Betty's tea. So all all the Yorkshire tea. Have you tried the
0: Yorkshire um, biscuit tea at all? I
2: have, and it was too sweet for me. I ah. I don't take any um, sugar in tea, and it felt wrong to combine it. So I'm I'm sticking to tea with biscuit on the side. I think, <laughs> but I'm glad I tried it, and everyone
0: should just to go. Okay. <laughs> I'm addicted to it, honestly. I nearly ran out last oh. week and there were emergency Ooh. dashes to the supermarket. Yes. Uh, and they don't a, always have that. Stressful time. Yes, absolutely. So what are your hopes for the future? You've reached this point. You're you you're in your happy place now. We're we're putting the the ghosts of times past to bed. What absolutely. What, what lies ahead? What are your hopes?
2: Because I've I've ticked so many of my my bucket list things. I I am I'm mainly hoping to carry on doing what I'm doing, which isn't always uh, guaranteed in, in this business. I feel very lucky that things are going well at the moment, but that can change very quickly. So I wish things to continue. I'd also like something I've written for TV to go on TV. So that that would be my proper kind of oh that's a proper tick. So I've also got um, gothic novels and literary novels that I've got that I want to write. So basically, I want to be all the things that are inside my head uh, that come out.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Well, you don't need to be talking to me. You need to go off and get pen to paper and start. (laughs) Well, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you. I really do mean that. And I just wish you all the best with your book, Murder on the Christmas Express. Alexandra Benedict, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. So with the other books, I'm really going to do speedy reviews. So prepare yourself for this. So the next one is Sometimes People Die by Simon Stevenson. Listen to this on audiobook. And here is the blurb. The year is 1999. Returning to practice after a suspension for stealing opioids, a young Scottish doctor takes the only job he can find, a post as a senior house officer in the struggling East London Hospital of St Luke's. Amid the maelstrom of sick patients, overworked staff and underfunded wards, a darker secret soon declares itself... Too many patients are dying. Which of the medical professionals our protagonist has encountered is behind the murders? And can our unnamed narrator's version of the events be trusted? Gosh, right, let's do the first sentence, shall we? There are many storied hospitals in London, venerated institutions where scientific breakthroughs were made and legendary physicians named unfortunate diseases after themselves. Even the very names of those hospitals, St Thomas, the Royal London Hospital, the Royal Brompton Heart and Chest Hospital, stir thoughts of centuries of grandeur, prestige and medical accomplishment. St Luke's was not such a place. I thought it was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Great narration. Good pace. I kept wanting to listen to find out what was happening. And yes, thoroughly enjoyed it. Bravo. The next one is a graphic novel. Welcome to the new world. And this is by Jake Halpin and Michael Sloan. It's got the line waking up in Trump's America a graphic novel and a true story. Listen to this. On the eve of the US elections 2016, a Syrian family leaves their world behind for a chance at the American dream. But as the first day of their new life dawns, they are greeted by the news of Donald Trump's victory. It's as if they arrived in one country and woke up in another. What does that mean for their past, their future, their home? This is the story of ordinary people navigating a strange land in even stranger times. I, I love this book. It was so moving and it taught me so much without me feeling that I was being taught. Do you know what I mean? I was just caught up in this story. And then at the end, there's some writing and photograph that really brings it firsthand. And I just didn't, I didn't appreciate all that was going on, all that is going on. I, And this just, it just it really moved me and kept me wanting to read it and shows me I need to read even more. Um, it's harrowing, uh, obviously, and there's a lot to consider, but I think we all need to be reading this. So, yeah, welcome to the New World graphic novel uh, An excellent read, if I can put that down. The next one, if you like a short story collection, then I think you'd be interested in this. The Six Who Came to Dinner by Anne Youngson. Here's the blurb on this one. Six short stories full of colourful suspects and complicated motives. The village cleaning lady who holds everyone's house keys opens a boot to find some unexpected baggage. A vengeful dinner party host serves more than just a roast to her six guests. Driven to distraction by his new young wife, a man resorts to two grisly acts in a gripping reimagining of a famous Irish ballad. Ripping away the polite facade of small communities, these tales of love, lies and revenge reveal the roiling emotions and frustrations that can drive seemingly good people to do bad things. I thought this was great. That's what I need to say. And I'm not a fan of short stories. I thought they were interesting. You could see that there's a well-known play as well that I uh, could see similarities in one of the stories. Obviously, it's not written in the same way, but just maybe inspired by something like that. But yeah, I thought it was great. If you're into short stories and particularly of a crime nature, but not full on crime, people and their crimes, then yeah, I think you'd find it really interesting. Six who came to dinner, Anne Youngson. There we go. Last book. We're getting through them. The Hive by Scarlet Braid. Oh, I wanted this book to be good. Let me read you the blurb. Charlotte Goodwin looks directly at the camera and reveals a chilling truth to the thousands watching her Instagram live broadcast. She has killed her ex-boyfriend's new partner in cold blood. But she is not finished yet. The viewers must now vote to decide whether he should live or die. The public display sends shockwaves rippling through the online community and the numbers of viewers skyrocket. But as Lincoln's past is revealed, how will he be judged? Let's do the first sentence. What happens when your reflection isn't your own anymore? When who you were isn't who you are? When the worst things have happened, who do you become? I ask this in a measured tone, looking straight at my camera phone. Now, I'm not going to tag the author in this. I had high hopes for this book. It's about social media. There was, you know, was there a crime in it? Secrets to be uncovered. Stories to discover. I was in. And it didn't grip me, but it's my fault. It It just felt really young. It felt more YA for me. But I don't know why. There was nothing, as I say, my fault entirely. It just didn't hit the notes that I was expecting. I had the wrong expectations for it. But if you've heard the blurb for it and think, oh, actually, that's something I'd like to read. Have a read of it and tell me what you think. I'm sure it was just me on a on a silly day. But uh, there we go. That was the hive. So still to come, we've got a chat with another indie publisher, Red Dog Press, and my top 10 books of the year. So hold tight.
3: Ready to pop the question?
0: Now, you may remember from a few weeks ago, we had some indie publishers on an episode. We had Karen from Arenda Books and Rebecca and Adrian from Hobet Books. And on the back of that, there has been, it's fair to say, an avalanche of activity. Lots of people interested in indie publishers and supporting them and more books. And indie publishers also, other indie, indie publishers coming forward and talking about um, how they're struggling as well. And I thought, well, it's Christmas. We need to know about more indie publishers. We need to know about their books. So let's go and talk to Red Dog Press, who I'm sure you've heard of. But if not, we'll get Sean to explain what Red Dog Press stands for. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome today Sean Coleman, the founder of indie publisher Red Dog Press. Sean, welcome.
5: Hello. Thanks for having me
0: had to talk to you obviously there's been a, a recent feature on the podcast about indie publishers and that seemed to resonate with you let, let's let start with the basics tell us about Red Dog Press what is it and how did it all get started
5: well it's um it's a very we're a very very small as in you know one man band with the help of his uh good woman and um a couple of paid freelancers every now and then it started because I as an author had a series that I'd been developing in different forms for about 15 years, it got commissioned as a book series, a character I absolutely loved. And um, it got commissioned by a, a German, or got bought by a German publisher called Bastait Luber, who had published two of my other books in English as well. Um, and they would asked for a new series, and I'd provided them with this one, and gone, right, okay, I think I can do this as a novel series. It's a good character. And, um... And they published the first one, and about a week after they brought it out, they closed down their English language arm, and just and dropped them and dropped them all, dropped all of us English apart from the, the short cozies. And so I was sort of a bit like, well, you've killed the series there, because who's now going to touch something that's it's been through, Net, uh, you know, NetGalley, and it's been through good reads and everybody's got opinions on it and you know the reviews were nice and everything but it had literally been out for 10 days and the, this the second book was with the editor um and you're just like oh god you've killed it so I was having a bit of a rail and the editor uh who I was working with said why don't you self-publish it and I was like well there's a bit of a is there a stigma there's a bit of a stigma you're self-publishing you know and I know from the the two previous books that published they were digital only and even then there's snobbery around digital only, or well, there was, I don't know that there is as much anymore because people are a bit, a bit wiser to things, but this was 2017 and, you know, different times. So I know a lot of people are like, when's it going to be properly published? And you're like, well, it is, but leave me alone. And I sort of looked into it a little bit and I've been working in film and TV and a lot of online and digital cross-platform projects, programmes, and things that go along with, you know, TV programmes and whatever. And um, it sort of struck me that we'd been doing some sci-fi series for Microsoft and some comedy series for O2, and and to generate audiences for that, you had to start from scratch online, find bloggers in that sphere of sci-fi or comedy or whatever who would look at your online content and then rate it. And this was all sort of in the late, late noughties and early tens of 2000. So it was all sort of burgeoning stuff. It was, you know, Twitter hadn't long been out and all of that kind of stuff. So, but what we had been, what I had been doing for years was, was generating audiences from a standing start online. And I thought, well, I can do that and I'm quite creative and I can do covers and I I can, I'm all right with software so I can typeset and format and do whatever. And I looked into what it took to basically produce a book and mine were the my series was the guinea pigs and then i thought well i've got th- i've got three red dogs i've got three visualists so that's that was the imprint i put on when i uploaded them to amazon and then um and i set up a twitter because you know you do and you set up little handles and, and about and i started selling books and thought oh this is quite cool but i need some uh, you know if i'm going to have an imprint then i need somebody else on it as well um so i started writing another series under a different name under ts hunter um which was good cuz it's a completely different series but then i had two authors and then other and then we were promoting those kind of things online and a blogger had got an indie book blogger had got in touch um and said can i review your books and how can i buy them so i set up a shop and it sort of organically evolved into a into us well, this was sort of 2018 and suddenly you go okay I, do you know what we should just try and do this properly So I, I, you know, then went to book fairs and took a bit of advice and spoke to other people and did some courses and whatever and and went, right, okay, here we go. And so I set it up and then other authors started approaching. Helene Kist came on board and then Chris McDonald came on board. And uh, and let's borrow from there. We've got 26 authors now, um, which which is cool. And about 100 titles. So there's times where you go right. We're, we're publishing too much now because it's only me. It's me that does the covers and the, and the, the editing and the everything else. So at at times you just feel like there's just not enough time to do all jobs and promote and, um, message massage the egos of certain authors, um, and so you know like I, I feel like now when we write agreements with authors, I need to make it very clear that they have to do at least 50% of their own marketing because those are the ways we're going to sell because I don't have the time or space or money to to do that kind of marketing. And actually what really works is people just building their own audience. And that works for when their careers really move beyond indie, as some of them are, and they take their audience with them because, you know... So I think, I don't know, it's sort of become a bit of a family thing and we're just weeding out some of the... The difficult jobs.
0: Because presumably then you could have a couple of authors that take up all your time and and the other authors, you know, just happy with, with what you can achieve.
5: Yeah, I think, I mean, like one of the things we ask people to put in their submission letter is what their ambition is. Because I think if somebody's looking to be red carpet and bestseller and whatever, then they need to understand the limitations, which is why the podcast with Karen from Arenda and Adrian and, and Beck from um, Hobeck was just, it resonated so much because that that expectation of like, I'm a published author and even authors who are like, very real about what they want and very, uh, and very real about what can be achieved their friends and family still go, ooh, published author, we're, you know, why can't I find it in my local Waterstones? And you're like, because for us right now, as Adrian was saying in the, in the previous podcast, for us to put a book into Waterstones, we're actually now paying them to take the book. and I can't afford to do that because I have to work another job just to pay my bills. So I can't really afford to pay a bookshop to take a book. And that's just because we can't afford to do big print runs and mass distribution because we don't have that capital. So we have to work on a print-on-demand basis. And now our average, the print costs have gone up so much in the last 12 months that our average paperback of about 300 pages, 260 pages, costs £5.71 to print. So if you're selling that at eight ninety nine, which people are already sniffy about doing and you have to give a bookshop even 40% discount, you're only selling them the book for £5.40 a unit, which means you're making a loss of 31p for every book that a bookshop takes before you've even posted it to them, <laughs> before they've then decided that they don't want it and they haven't sold it and can they send it back at your own expense.
0: And yet it must be a job that you enjoy because you're still doing it. You're, you know, you're carrying on. There must be a passion there.
5: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think because I because I felt that joy of being published myself first. And I think there are voices that we've taken on. Um, I'm looking at people like Steve Golds or John Bowie or the, the, the authors that we've taken on in our sort of darker, grittier, noir section of, of the press who just wouldn't make um their their voices are far too difficult in a lot of ways for mainstream publishers to understand where to put them and it is hard to know where to put them but they're exactly the kind of niche audience that you can build really well and it's exactly the kind of audience that that people like Will Carver are writing to and and that's why Karen can can um publish books like that as well because she doesn't have to stick to the to the what's what's sold well last month so let's do more of those kind of mantra of, of mainstream publishing but I, what I love is then speaking to those authors and them going you know this is you fulfilled one of my lifelong dreams or this has been a you know you saved my life in certain cases that there, there are people who've been sort of battling with with other things that and you go actually it's more than just publishing and it's more than it's if if even one other person reads his book and goes, yeah, you're absolutely right, that is the most phenomenal thing I've ever read, then then you've done your job, you know. I think that's the point. And I've got so many authors who are just, you know, they have become friends and they are lovely people to work with. And, you know, everybody's got ambition for where their book's going to go. But I think, you know, if if we can openly talk honestly about the issues of indie publishing and how hard it is, and everybody work together, then those books can see a bigger audience than if everybody just leaves it to their indie publisher to to do the work, you know. Mm.
0: Yeah. So with Red Dog Press, what types of books could people expect? Perhaps someone's never come across you before. What sort of genres? And I appreciate everything's different, but what might they expect from a book from Red Dog Press?
5: We were always crime and thriller, crime, thriller and mystery. You know, that's that's the mainstay of Red Dog, um, because that's what I write. And so that's what I love. And so when I'm reading things, I go, yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. However, we do have Gordon Brown's Any Day Now, which is a coming of age story. That's, you know, it's an absolutely incredible, it's a bit sort of Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine meets, you know, Daisy and the Sex or whatever. It's, it's one of those sort of, it's hard to pigeonhole, and again, that's one of those things. It's hard to categorise, it's hard to pigeonhole, and that makes it an incredible book. It's full of nostalgia, it's full of pathos, it's full of everything else. When you read it, you go, it's fantastic. Mel, we've got a, a historical gay romance, by um, an author called Mel Goff, And I met her and she'd asked me uh, for some beta read on the South African side of it because I grew up in the part of South Africa that was set, obviously not in the 1950s, but I still knew enough about the area. And I read the book and I was just said, uh, this is the most transformative, beautiful love story I've ever read. And if nobody... And she was trying to pitch it. I met her at the book fair and she was trying to pitch it. And I said if nobody else publishes it, then we will publish it because it is the most incredible story. And it makes it harder for us to sell because you can't say, well, if you like Chris McDonald's Murder at the Ice Rink, you'll love uh, this 1950s gay romance. you know. But there's, I think there's scope for that. And she's got her own audience, so she can... Generate a different readership for us that might also cross over, and you know. Then we, so, and we've just published Stephen Keedy's Running and Jumping, which is about the rivalry between two long jumpers over three Olympics, and it's the most amazing study of characterization. I think you'll read in the next few years. It's absolutely incredible. And now every time you watch any athlete be interviewed after a after a track or field event, you go, "Yeah, he got that spot on." You know that that idea that you can. Break the British world record, or the break the British record, and still not come first, and and still feel like you've lost everything. It gives me goosebumps. That book. You'll find mostly a lot of crime, and a lot of it with sort of unconventional voices. So you know, LGBTQ voices, or characters that are outside of the mainstream. One of our, one of the uh, Steve Gold's books characters is a study of OCD, obsessive obsessive OCD, like really very difficult to read but it, you know it's based on his lived experience as well so there's there's stuff like that that you know you rarely feel and Sharon Bairdon's books are based on her experience and the kind of social work that she does and the people that she deals with in terms of mental health and and everything else you can really feel that experience sitting in there. Evan Baldock used to be a, a, a copper in Soho and his stories his bang bang you're dead and and whatever, are very firmly rooted in his own experience. So I think I quite like having those voices and stories that you just think, you just don't read these, you won't find these on the shelves in supermarkets. Not just because supermarkets are lost leaders, but because they wouldn't have been picked up in the mainstream because they're too challenging, I think. So it's not about
0: putting your books in a box, it's about books that are different but gutsy and need to be read? Yeah,
5: it's voices that you didn't... Think you needed to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you that's
5: do. That's, that's sort of the best description of our authors. You, every book you'll pick up, you'll go, bugger me, I wasn't expecting to enjoy that. But it'll really refresh you. I, we get a lot of people saying, this book really brought me out of my reading slump. And I think we all get slumps because we're reading the same thing ad infinitum. You start going, wait, hang on a sec, these are bleeding there's a lot of crossover and, and, you know, you can see things going in waves of, of what's popular and something's done well. So now there's 17 more of them hot on its heels. And, you know, that zeitgeist sometimes feels a little tired. And I think we get tired of reading the same things with similar characters. And, and then you pick up one of a, a red dog book or, or arguably most indie publishers, I, I'd say to be fair, and you'll just be surprised. You'll be surprised that, you know, it's, it resonates so well. There's so many things, like even in one of my books, one of the readers said, you know, she had, her husband was out fighting in Afghanistan and my main character's husband was missing in action. And she said, you know, it, this terrifies me. I could almost not read on because that that fear that, you know, this is going to be the call you're taking next is there. And it's just those it's little things would be cut out because they're a bit too challenging.
0: And what what I found interesting on your website is the subscriptions that you offer for all different types of reading and all different types of pockets or wallets. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those?
5: Yeah, we just thought, I mean, like we run our website through Wix, which is, a you know, quite a low cost way of doing reasonable looking stuff. And And every now and then they throw on a good little widget that you can play with a bit. And I just thought there are so many, but especially with our cozies, where you've got long-running series like the the Charingham's and the Midworths, you know, there's there's loads of those still in the bag to come out. And you think, well, you could get one of those a month quite easily, and if you just knew, like, and you know, I think like Bert's Books does fantastic subscription deals and things like that. So I was sort of looking around at those and thought it's a nice way. It's like you know the the. The guys who knock on your door and say they're from the British Art Foundation or whatever, if you can just do two pounds a month, you'll keep and it is actually true like two pounds a month does is better than no pounds a month if you can do subscriptions and you can introduce things to people they wouldn't necessarily so like we've got one that's just the old dog, which is just anything from our back catalog once a month, so you know like and that's nice because I think the other thing for indie publishing is that. And this is the main thing to get into author's heads is that it's not all about the launch. It's a real long tail sales event. You just have to keep pushing everything. You can't stop just because books come out, the launch has happened and a month later, blah, blah, there you go. You've got your four reviews. What more do you want from me? It just can't be like that. You know, it has to be. So trying to just explain to people that it's a real long tail. It's recognizing that you, like with any other job, if this is going to be your job, being an author you have to do the legwork as well like it's not a job that's gifted to you
0: we're nearly at the end you've given us lots of interesting names of authors and books but just give me as Orenda and Hobeck had to do give me two books that we need to go out and acquire before Christmas
5: I would say so I'd say definitely Steve Gold's uh, Stephen J. Gold's as per his proper author name Stephen Jay Gould's The Dead, The Dying, and The Gone trilogy, which is all three of his um, dark trilogy in one. That's one I would definitely buy. And the other, oh, that's really hard. They're all my babies. They're all my babies. Before Christmas, what do we want for Christmas? I would say buy Chris McDonald's Stonebridge Mysteries compilation. Then you get all six of those.
1: (laughs)
0: Oh, wow. Two book recommendations. We've got a trilogy and then all six. Uh, you <laughs> you are accomplished at your job, Sean. I'll, I'll give you that. So um, final question. If we could, if you could have a Christmas wish, one wish uh, for Red Dog Press, what would it be?
5: That we are at least in the same position, if not better by this time next year. So, yeah, I think I think what I'd really I'd really wish is that. At least some of our authors take off bigger than they are right now. And um, we float safely as a company through this. I think it's going to be a tricky old year. So I think my ambition is that if we're at least in the same position as we are now, this time next year, then I'll have achieved something pretty remarkable. So, yeah, that's my wish. Bye, books, people.
0: Well, I'll get out my magic wand and wave the fairy dust and and make it so. But uh, yeah, we look forward to following your progress. Sean Coleman of Red Dog Press, thank you so much.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm aware that time is running out and you will need to go off and prepare for Christmas. But let me just whip through my top 10 books of the year. These are in no order. I can't, I can't prioritise them. I just can't. But these are the 10 that have stayed with me and meant the most. But there have been so many amazing books. Anyway, Philippa, you're waffling. Let's list them. So the top 10 books in no order are That Bone Bonesetter Woman by Frances Quinn, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, by Juno Dawson Instructions for a Heat Wave by Maggie Farrell The Last House on Needless Street by Katrina Ward The Accomplice by Steve Kavanagh The Botanist by M.W. Craven The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley by Sean Lusk Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby and The Satsuma Complex by Bob Mortimer Those are my 10. I'd love to know what your favourite books are of the year. What have you enjoyed? Do tell me. Do join us on the Facebook group. You'd be ever so welcome there. And, ooh, feeling a bit emotional as I say this, but honestly, I just want to wish you all such a Merry Christmas. Whatever's happening with you, I, I hope it's a good day. And just thank you for being with me this year, over the years. You really are... A very happy place for me. And it just means a lot that you're listening and supporting me. And I just look forward to celebrating the new year for 2023 with you. Let's hope there are better times ahead and there's lots of books to get us through it, whatever happens. So just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one,
1: ever. See you again soon.
3: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.